many claims circulating on social media about the alleged dangers that the vaccines pose to young people. We hear about excess deaths, we hear about supposed cardiac problems with many athletes. And the question is, how is one to deal with such claims? Shall one try to debunk them? Shall one try to interrogate them? Maybe should someone worry that maybe there is some kernel of truth in them? Or should one say, I will dismiss them altogether because they're conspiracy theories and thus they're not worthy of my time? So to answer these questions today, I will be interviewing an infectious disease expert and a philosopher. So with me today is Amis Adalza, a senior scholar at Johns Hopkins University, and also Mike Maza, associate fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. This is Nikos, and this is New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. So, Amis, you've heard the stories, you've heard the rumors that supposedly the mRNA vaccines are dangerous to young people. So what is the reality and what are the facts of the case? So the first thing is to recognize that no vaccine has zero side effects, that every vaccine involves the risk-benefit trade-off that people have based on their risk factors for whatever you're trying to protect against. When it comes to the mRNA vaccines, yes, we have identified certain safety signals, particularly myocarditis or in the heart in younger boys who get vaccinated, uh, particularly with the second dose of the vaccine if it's based too close to the first dose. That's the only side effect that we really uh, noted at that point. Uh, and I think it's important to um, say that, that that's a relatively minor side effect in terms of it's not life-threatening. Those, those kids do well uh, once they recover from this. Uh, and it's obviously scary when people have inflammation. It's a very different type of inflammation of the heart than what even COVID itself causes. That's all we really have seen uh, that I think is worth discussing. But what, what has happened is people have taken that idea that mRNA vaccines can cause heart inflammation in a small subset of people and then have extrapolated it to create kind of a whole cottage industry of other side effects that they that they kind of get their foot in the door with this myocarditis data and then totally shear it from its context and, and use it as a way to say that these mRNA vaccines are causing deaths or doing, do, causing sudden deaths, all of the cascading effects that there's actually no evidence for. And the danger is, is that it's influencing people's behavior and their view of these vaccines, which have, you know, have been unfairly uh, tagged with this this uh, uh, this label that they're that they're dangerous, and it's it's unjust and unfair. Right. So, and here the question becomes, Mike and Amy. So, are these people who are spreading these claims, are they actually making? A mistake in terms of, the, of they're trying to find what the truth is and just they get the numbers wrong or maybe they're not familiar with how to read and understand statistics or could it be that there is something else there could it be that they're making things up in which case we're not dealing with people who are wrong we're dealing with people who are committing a, a way a much bigger sin for a lack of a better word what do you think mike well so the the title of the um, discussion today is how to deal with the arbitrary. So maybe I should just say a word or two about what um, what we mean by that. So <clears throat> the idea that a claim can be arbitrary um, is a, a little bit of a term of art from um, objectivism, which is uh, Ayn Rand's philosophy or on the 
podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. And the <clears throat> basic idea is that a someone makes a claim arbitrarily in this, in this uh, sense of the term when they're making the claim without evidence, but not just without evidence, in, in defiance of the need of genuine evidence. So uh, arbitrary claims are not the same as merely false claims. Um, so you can think of a merely false claim as a claim somebody's really trying to get it right, they're thinking it through, they're looking at the evidence and they wind up saying something that's, um, that's not true. Um, that's, you know, we prefer to get things right. We prefer true claims to false ones, but a, a false claim is usually the product of an earnest effort, whereas an arbitrary claim involves some kind of um, pretense of, of, of trying, to, trying to justify the claim. Um, and it's, I think, going to come up uh, later is what exactly should we do with these sorts of claims, claims made without evidence and defiance of the evidence. And the ad advice that, um, that objectivism gives that I give to students interested in the question is that you shouldn't in ordinary circumstances, go through the process of trying to um, refute it or process it in part because insofar as it's made without or in defiance of evidence, there's not really something to process or think about. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's not that it's like, it's not just that it's a mistake to take uh, claims made in defiance of evidence seriously, it's that you can't really even do it because part of assessing a claim is to think about what evidence leads to its acceptance. And if there's not really evidence in its favor, there's a question of what exactly am I even supposed to do? Now, there are situations where you can, you can take, take a, especially claims that make uh, concrete factual claims, like a certain number of people died during a certain period of time. Um, those sorts of claims, if they're made arbitrarily, you can point out that they uh, contradict something that's known. Um, so you can do certain delimited things with them, but you're not really under any obligation to do. Sometimes the, there's a sort of saying that which is asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. Um, I think that's, that's typically um, good, uh, good advice. The problem, though, is that when such claims are everywhere, not trying to debunk them means that they become prevalent. So, uh, Amis, is it my idea or is it that these, these conspiracy theories about the vaccines have gone out of any proportion as times goes by? So put differently, the, today there are way more people who are more vax hesitant, to put it mildly, or straightforward anti-vaxxers than they used to be two years ago. And here's a weird thing. The vaccines are what took us out of the darkness that we were two years ago. And yet, as the more we see that we've returned to a normal, more or less normal life, with the tragic, of course, uh, death toll of the COVID, but we are to something that resembles normality. And how do you explain that the more we see that actually the vaccines work, the, the case... Uh, the, 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 how lethal COVID is for people who has had the vaccines, 
is way lower than what it was at the time when we didn't have the vaccine. How do you explain that we see the results and yet people are more and more, more and more people are more and more convinced that the vaccines are something very bad? So this is mind-boggling, but it's something that we've seen with other uh, other rises in the anti-vaccine movement. So, for example, uh, there wasn't a very strong anti-vaccine movement against measles in the 1940s and 1950s. It only started in the 1990s when people had the luxury to not see children in the hospital with measles, when people did not have the luxury of seeing, had the luxury of not seeing a thousand kids die in the United States from, from, from measles every year. So it's often that sometimes people say, well, COVID is more manageable now, and they completely drop the whole underlying they don't even ask themselves, why is it more manageable? They think it's more, that it was always this manageable is what they may think. They may deny what it was like in the hospitals in December of 2020, January of 2021, which was uh, as close to hell on earth that I can imagine in a hospital when I was working there. And I think they've forgotten all of that. And now because COVID-19 is more manageable, because we don't have hospitals on the brink, they feel, they, they say, you know, why do we need this vaccine? It didn't do anything and it caused more harm than good. And they completely evade how many lives are actually saved by the vaccines and what made it manageable, as you say. And the other point is that, you know, Mike brought up that there was this pretense. You have to remember that they were attacking the mRNA vaccines even before they were made. Um, even when they were just an inkling, when they were a spark in the eyes of the developers, they, uh, uh, they were attacking them before they came. So we knew that this was going to be ferocious battle with the anti-vaccine movement. And the, the dangerous part is, is that, yes, these are arbitrary claims and you can dismiss them from a cognitive perspective, but there are many people who are mistaken and don't know, don't understand that these are arbitrary claims. They see them on social media and they take actions based on those. And that's the dangerous part is that the average person on the street may not really understand that this is an arbitrary claim because they see some sort of semblance of evidence that might be put there or some assertion or somebody has credentials. And that's the, the part where, you know, just dismissing it out of hand doesn't really help that person who's actually trying to understand these issues. And that's the, the danger that you almost have to kind of debunk things that you shouldn't have to debunk just so that other people can hear you debunking it uh, when you transfer it to a context where there, there, there is evidence. And I think that's the issue. And the, and the other point is that the anti-vaccine movement has now bled from COVID into influenza, back to measles again, and we're seeing them on steroids now. They've really been energized by uh, what's happened politically with COVID-19. And uh, now I think that you know, vaccines are something that now people look at as if it's an unnecessary technology, not recognizing the fact that you know, decades have been added to everyone's lives because of the, the advent of vaccines. And the other thing, of course, that has happened is that many people have jumped on the anti-vax bandwagon for purely political reasons. So the tribalism of today, people, the way people see the world is the left supports the vaccine. I view the world through the lenses that say that the left is bad. Therefore, whatever the left does, I want to do the opposite one. So you think you're an independent thinker. Actually, you are a completely second, second-hand thinker. You're a contrarian. You see, what do the people I hate support? I will do the opposite. So this is how we saw vaccines being politicized. Of course, it wasn't the only reason why vaccines got politicized, but I think it just added to the toxicity. So let me ask you a what? question, both of you. It's, yes, sorry, go on. No, one point is that the anti-vaccine movement used to be a species of the far left. Marin County, California, Washington, Oregon. Now those people are very pro-vax. So on the other side, there's tribalism that way. They became pro-vax 
because they saw that the right started to become anti-vax. It, it's, it's just a very strange thing. Mississippi, West Virginia used to have some of the highest vaccination rates in the country. Now they don't for COVID-19. So yes, there's tribalism has imbued all, is all imbued all through this, uh, even though uh, the signature achievement of the, the Trump administration was Operation Warp Speed and the delivery of these vaccines in record time, uh, even Donald Trump gets booed when he advocates the vaccine. <laughs> That's unbelievable indeed. So here's a question which is both scientific, but also it comes down to how we deal with knowledge. It's an epistemological question. So let's say you're having a discussion with a person you love. So it's not someone you can just dismiss. And they tell you that, uh, look, here's five links that show that uh, ivermectin work. And here are seven other links with pieces of research that show that uh, excess deaths are very, very high. And uh, the, the obvious explanation is the vaccine. So how do you deal with such claims? Do you go and spend hours of your life reading one by one these, uh, these papers? Because if you don't tell them anything, it's like, oh, I've read the papers, I've done my own research, which is such a fashionable term these days, and therefore now I'm convinced that vaccines are bad. So how do we deal with, here are five papers that support my view? For someone like me who's kind of versed in this, I can look at those papers pretty quickly and point out major flaws in them and point people to better papers or or ways to understand why those papers are flawed. So th there's that ability that I do if, if it's something I really um, I'm trying to con convince somebody that this is the wrong position. Oftentimes, though, it's not that they present me with papers. They'll just say they'll assert something that they heard from somebody to somebody. And I'll say, well, what's your what's your hang up? Tell me specifically what it is. And then they, they may tell me that I'm worried. I'm worried about, I'm worried about sudden cardiac death. And then I actually through the evidence that may or may not exist behind that claim, talk about what, what, how, to, how to minimize that risk if that risk actually is real. So for example, myocarditis or, or blood clots with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And I talk them through that and I kind of meet them where they are and, and nudge, nudge them just by giving them information. And most people, if they're honest, will start to understand that, that you're giving them good information, especially because if you look at you know who's speaking about these things, it's you, it's never an infectious disease, a board certified infectious disease doctor that's making these claims. Say not even an infectious disease doctor speaking outside of their field. I'm a person who actually studies this and has dedicated my life to studying this, and I'm taking you through all of this data. Find me another infectious disease doctor that will take the other side, and you will never find one. Um, I just was asked to be on 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 GB News on on Friday, and they said we're going to have someone from the other side. And I said, is it the other side an infectious disease doctor or microbiologist? No, it's probably not. It's going to be some doctor and not in the field that they, that they that's going to assert arbitrary stuff, and then I'm going to have to debunk it. But that, that's often what happens is, you know, what are the true subject matter experts in the field saying? That's important. And who are you getting your information from? And I think that that helps. You know, if someone's all they think about is infectious disease, like me. I have no benefit in deluding you about something. I have my, my incentive is actually to, to explain it because I like the subject. I want people to learn about it. So I think that that's one way I do it is I, I much better when on a, it's, it's much better dealing with people on an individual basis and trying to deal with the claims that they have and, and work with them through the data that they may not be able to understand fully. And selfishly, I would want to say, I wish you went to the GB News because and take one for the team, because this is what happens in more and more mainstream circles. We hear these crazy, these crazy things. But Mike, so how do you deal with people who tell you here are five links? What's the philosopher's takes on people telling you, hey, I've done my own research, although 
by profession. I have nothing to do with uh, that field. But here are uh, here's my research, and uh, I've made up my mind, and so should you now. Well, so I don't know how to evaluate research as well as Amish does, but I know a little bit about how to read a scientific paper. So per personally, I can look at some of this and uh, arrive at a kind of judgment. But I think, <clears throat> so if you don't have any sort of background in, in um, uh, assessing scientific research papers at all, I think one of the things you should think to yourself is, um, why do I think these papers are evidence for the claim um, being made? And also think, do I even know what it would be to offer evidence for a claim like this drug is effective? Like what, putting aside for the moment, is this good evidence um, for the claim that say ivermectin is effective? Have a particular research paper in front of you. Just think, do I know more abstractly, like what would even count as evidence for this claim? And if you don't really have a good sense of that, then you're not really in a position to say whether or not some paper or some article is good evidence for something. And you, you're in the you're in the position of having to talk to somebody like Amish and then, uh, you know, seek out some maybe somebody who would criticize him and try to assess the back and forth if you could find somebody who can do that. I wanted to, to add to something I was uh, saying earlier about um, arbitrary claims and the, the kind of pretense that people um, go through. And I think it, it really is important to understand that claims that are arbitrary are almost always accompanied by um, phony evidence. I'll, I'll put it that way. So for, um, so for example, and, and this is especially relevant when we're talking about claims uh, of, about the effectiveness of or ineffectiveness of a drug or how many people are dying from so-and-so cause that these are, these, those sorts of claims are almost always made on the basis of some kind of, uh, in part on some kind of sophisticated data gathering and statistical analysis of the data. Um, and you might have heard the, uh, I, I don't know if this comes from a book title or if it's just like a, an expression, there's lies, damn lies and statistics. So a lot of the times what happens in these arbitrary, um, assertions is that there's some sort of, um, artifice of an analysis, analysis of data. Look here, I have some numbers, I have some factual claims. It looks like I'm processing the factual claims numerically. That's kind of what it looks like to give evidence in normal circumstances. And uh, I, I have an example of this that I think it kind of illustrates the point I'm, I'm making. So maybe some of you have heard the claim that uh, you know, there's a couple of varieties of this. Uh, more athletes have died in the past year than the past 38 years is the one uh, is where I the, the first version of this I came across, there's also a variant of this, there'll be some number, like one in so many young male athletes have heart issues from the COVID vaccine, allegedly. Um, and these sort of, these, these claims seem to come from a, um, the, the more numerical ones, where it was like 38 years, one in 5,000, that, that come from uh, a letter to the editor in the 
Scandinavian Journal of Immunology. Um, I'll say who the author is later because I want to make the epistemic point before making the point about evaluating experts that I'm, that I'm leading to. So <clears throat> let's just take the claim more athletes have died in the past year than the past 38 years. How would you know something like that's true? Presumably what you do is you look at some data set about athlete deaths over the, a certain period of time leading up to the release of the vaccine. And then you'd have another data set about it, after the vaccine and you'd run some kind of comparison between the two. Um, <clears throat> and that's what this letter purports to do. So it looks at some initial data set about athlete deaths over a period of 38 years prior to the, uh, to the vaccine. And it has some, um, you know, it, it's, it's a study of under 35 male athletes who suffer a sudden cardiac death. And there's, there's definitions of each of the under 35 sort of straightforward that what counts as an athlete, what counts as a sudden death. And then the author of this letter looks at another data set of athlete deaths over the past year or so. And they conclude that there's like orders of magnitude more deaths in the past year than the past 38 years. So that's the basis of the claim. But then <clears throat> what the author did is compare a study of under 35, 35 and under male athletes who suffer cardiac death to a data set of male athletes of any age who died, it seems like anyhow. So for example, in this second data set, there's a, a 39 year, or sorry, a 49 year old male, right? So wouldn't be included in the first data set. 49 is not, is not under 35, who died of a car crash. Um, <clears throat> it includes a 27 year old. Okay, so that would be included in the first data set. But that 27 year old died of suicide by gunshot. So they're included in the second data set. So there's not a compare, right? A comparison of like to like. Um, and you know, Amish pointed out to me when we were talking about this earlier that, you know, if you kind of flip things around. So if I included as a COVID death, a 27 year old who died of a gunshot, kind of, that would be highly objectionable. It's highly objectionable here. So <clears throat> this is not the sort of comparison that would be evidence of the claim that there are more young male athletes dying of sudden cardiac death. It's not even evidence that there's more athletes of any male athletes of any age that are because there's deaths that aren't um, that aren't uh, uh, cardiac deaths. So you know th this kind of has the facade of trying to gather evidence for a claim, but it's doing so in a way with obvious flaws that someone who is a uh the author of this letter was peter mccullough who i think maybe many people are familiar with it's a cardiologist has published research in the past i mean he should know that this is not a comparison of like to like um and that i mean that's what it looks like to make an arbitrary claim it's you have some assertion about more athletes are dying more young at male athletes are dying now than in a certain period of time that's the claim you're trying to defend how do you justify it? Well, you kind of go through this rigmarole of sort of offering evidence, but it's not actually evidence and not the sort of thing that could be evidence for, for the claim. Um, and, you know, we were saying earlier, um, 
about dismissing arbitrary claims. I think there's an extension of that. People who make arbitrary claims, I don't think should be taken seriously. Um, and this person, uh, McCullough, seems to be uh, the source for a lot of these vaccine skeptic claims. So, you know, I invite people who might be swayed by this in the audience to look into this cut claim. I think there's a pretty clear cut case of fabricating or manufacturing evidence, pseudo evidence for a claim. Um, and if you're listening to this guy, uh, why? If you if you if you look at this example and understand that this is a, a phony bit of evidence, why would you take this person seriously? I think that's part of what you can do. If you see somebody making arbitrary claims, you understand it's debunked. You can't just say, oh, okay, this one's debunked. Let me look at the other 75 things this person has said. No, I mean, your attitude should be this person I no longer consider an expert. Um, and, you know, that's, it's important to note, that's different than just somebody got it wrong. If somebody's earnestly trying to figure out the truth about vaccine side effects and they, you know, they get it wrong, that's not grounds to dismiss somebody. I mean, that's inevitable in um, medicine and science and life, the earnest efforts to get to the truth. Uh, come up short. What's discrediting about this is that it's a phony effort to get at the truth. And we are only two years after the, the, the dark days of the beginning of the pandemic. And remember how many people from, quote, the other side, we're creating these scare stories, although there was a very real danger. But the, we heard these stories so many 30 years old are in ICU, in ventilators. And I know a guy who was 25 and uh, died of uh, perfectly healthy and died of COVID. And I was thinking, how much darkness must there be in your soul that in these dramatic and important moments, you want to propagate fear? And now two years later, we see people from the quote other side doing exactly the same thing and of course we are not we cannot psychologize but i'm i'm wondering why what is it in you to try to to try to try to 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 find such a such a refuge in fear in darkness why why do people do this of course political tribalism is one thing but what are these people after that's what i don't understand do they, do they truly believe their claims are there are they high on their own drug so do you think that in their minds these people truly believe that because if this is a case then we have a huge problem in our society that it's one thing to say many people are crooks and it's another thing to say many people have no idea how to think i don't know what their actual motivation is or what they would get if they if they achieved their goals or how they are many of them we find are vaccinated themselves when you look that, that some of this is kind of a sham that they're doing uh, that there's that they're selling products or they're doing something on on the side that that might be some motive but I, I don't know that we can think of just ascribe one motive to a lot of these people many of the doctors i think are disaffected they may think that the system has kind of turned on them and that and then they have kind of an uh uh just kind of an anathema to anything that the that the establishment or academic medicine may be saying that they've they're going to oppose no matter what because they're, they're disgruntled, uh, at least some of them are. But it's it's really um, a mystery to me. But the anti-vaccine movement has always existed as long as there's been vaccines. Since Edward Jenner invented the first vaccine in the late 1700s, the anti-vaccine movement was invented with it. And uh, it, it's unclear what they actually what they actually are aiming to achieve because 
especially in the medical profession, everyone with any kind of uh, honest look at the data can see what vaccines have done. So to, to me, I think it's really, you know, the voice of the dark ages that's, that's kind of roaring back. And I don't know what, what their actual aim is, but they're gaining in currency. And I think that the, the general public probably does not know how to think and does not know how to dispense with their claims. And uh, I think it's a, it's a major, it's a, it's a danger because it, it will, that type of thinking, you know, can metastasize out of vaccines to medicine, to technology, to whatever it may be. And that's, that's a recipe for stagnation and, and death of the whole human society. If that type of thinking is, is allowed to, to, to move forward. And that, because this yeah. is exactly what tribalism does to your mind. It makes you stupid. Any type of wrong thinking makes you stupid. Recently, we had the World Cup. And uh, football is something which I'm very passionate about. And I consider myself knowledgeable about. And I would hear all these crazy theories that the Qataris wanted, had rigged the World Cup because they wanted to give it to Messi. And I thought that person, their life is not going to go well. If on one area, which supposedly you're, it's something that you're interested in, you think in that way, I don't trust you on anything. I don't trust you even to tell me what day of the week it is because your, your main navigating tool is, uh, is completely broken. So, Mike, do you have any insights on why this could be happening? Why are these people actually b- believing these things or are they just grifters and maybe which of the two would be worse? Yeah, I agree with what Amish was saying. I think I'm usually skeptical of giving a there's the, there's single explanation for this this, this sort of uh, this kind of um, more concrete cultural phenomenon. Like some people seem to be grifters. I mean, as, as, if you want to put it that way, that does seem to be a real. Uh, there's the tribalism, a certain kind of uh, vaccine. Um, uh, um, uh, advocacy is sort of associated with you know, the cultural elites and leftists. Um, so you get a kind of reactionary rightist uh, opposition to it. It's a kind of tribalism. There's also uh, a, a lot of mm, people who define themselves as contrarians. Um, and this is a mainstream view that's being strongly pushed onto the public that you should get the vaccine, that the vaccines are don't question it. Like that, that it's is the current thing, uh, like supporting Ukraine. Yeah. yeah, it's the current thing. And I'm against the current thing. Like um, you see this, uh, unfortunately, with a lot of uh, fans of Ayn Rand who they're, they don't understand her any more deeply than seeing her as a contrarian. So they, oh, that's what attracts them to them. She has some kind of special insight that they have now that those people who think they know better than me don't have. um, And that sort of translates into skepticism of uh, mainstream medicine. medicine. I mean, it's um, been going on for a while with vaccines, uh, as Amish pointed out. Um, There's also the, wider skepticism of technology that probably plays into this too. Um, so it's not, there's the, there's been a long, uh, you know, 30 years uh, or more anti-vaccine movement. There was also the anti-GMO movement. Um, it, it, that's from the less about back these in days. The day. from, from the left. 
Um, but, you know, there's right-wing anti-technology, anti-science um, uh, trends too. So a lot of that's probably percolating um, as well as causally relevant to, uh, to the current skepticism of the COVID vaccine. I mean, it even so, goes beyond that because there's some people who, I was going to say that even some people from the very beginning were saying that there's microchips involved. I mean, there's just complete, um, no, I don't even, arbitrary is almost to give it a compliment. It's just completely crazy um, stuff that people were, were believing. And I, I don't know where that comes from. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't, I haven't been able to figure out where that one in particular uh, originates other than just some kind of 4chan uh, uh, conspiracy that, and remember, people were attacking 5G towers. They were believing 5G towers were responsible for COVID itself. And they were attacking 5G towers. I mean, that, that is Dark Ages type of mentality. Well, the difference is that the people who were attacking 5G was a very, very small minority. Whereas today, vaccine hesitancy, I'm not saying straight, bad, crazy anti-vaxxers, but vaccine hesitancy is expanding to larger parts of the population. So... For the sake of some people who still have not given up reason, but maybe because it's not their specialty, maybe because of their echo chamber, still have some questions. So, Amis, let's try to still man some legitimate questions that I don't know if they're legitimate, but some questions that someone might have. And most of them, I actually see the, some of them in the chat, have to do more or less with the following. They say, look, We've had, the, we've had the pandemic, which was something which very new. We had some vaccines that we used for the first time. And uh, there are many things that we still don't know, they would say. So why aren't we looking more into this? It's, it's the, I'm just asking questions kind of approach. They say, look, I don't know, I haven't seen the data, but it seems like I see on Twitter, I see athletes collapsing. Maybe it's the media, they're showing them to me but maybe there is something. So how would it look like approaching this topic with more, let's say, eagerness? Because what they claim is that maybe there's this conspiracy of science. Or another claim is, why is there, there more transparency by the pharmaceutical companies? I see a, a chat comment. Or someone else might say, why do they have immunity in case uh, something goes wrong with the vaccines? Why do the vaccine manufacturers have immunity? Now, I don't know how accurate this is, but this is, these are claims that I hear from people who I know for a fact are not Alex Jones category. So if we'd want to deal with such claims with love and sympathy towards these people, there might be family members, friends. How would, we, how would you answer them, Amy, with your, let's say, professional uh, demeanor? So I'd answer them one by one. So I can do that right now. I can take those four examples that you gave me. So number one, the vaccines were made very fast. So that's actually a feature, not a bug, um, because many of us in the field of pandemic preparedness have been advocating for mRNA vaccines long before the pandemic. I wrote a major report before the pandemic on the promise of mRNA vaccines, which were about two decades in, in development, that these were not something that uh, was just thought up on the uh, off, you know, on, a, on a, a napkin that someone wrote at some diner. This was something that had been planned and they've been working at this for, for 20 years to get it right. And you actually have to look at the biology of what's in an mRNA vaccine. It's not something that is known to be toxic, not something that's going to have any risk. And when you look about, when they say, no, we don't know what's gonna happen five years, 10 years from now. If you look at other vaccines that have been approved, all of the major side effects have been identified within months 
of actual administration. Now we're we're, we're several years into the two, two, at least two years into this. Plus we had, we had preclinical data. So nothing was there to, to, that that's not something that we could expect that we're going to see something 10 years from now. That's never happened with any other vaccine. Uh, number two. So, so they said, you know, the pharmaceutical company transparency, I think this has probably been the most transparent process ever uh, in terms of how much data is available, how much is there on, on the websites of the regulatory agencies, as well as you're seeing the CEOs talk about their vaccines every day, getting accosted on the street. There's now some YouTube with the CEO, the Pfizer CEO uh, getting accosted where they're answering questions all the time. And you've got the regulatory agencies that are just, they're, they're almost to the point where they're releasing they're, they're, they're releasing information that I think sometimes is, gets misinterpreted because they're releasing it. They're trying to be transparent. So for example, we heard a little bit about a database a couple of, of, of weeks ago that maybe showed some link with strokes in the Pfizer bivalent vaccine. That was something that usually would never be released and have a CDC press release about, but that happened because they're worried about transparency. You know, why do the companies have liability? This always happens during inf infectious disease emergencies because the pharmaceutical companies don't want to get involved in this because it's not very lucrative to them. They don't get much return on investment. And if the downside is they get sued if something happens and the government is compelling them, almost compelling them to make these vaccines, that's where that immunity protection comes in. It started in 1976 with the influenza scare that happened in 1976, where the government said, we need a new vaccine. And they said, we don't really want to make it. And then they said, but if you're we'll give you, if we're going to, we want you to make it. And when the government asks people to do that, we saw what happened with, you know, the, the, the Defense Powers Act, where they can actually compel them to make it. Of course, you're going to give them immunity. So if you're actually, this is a government program, the, the vaccination program, that a lot of the pharmaceutical companies willingly did, but because the government was asking them to do that, part of that is an immunity deal because they didn't have, you know, a pharmaceutical company wants to make sure that they do, that they do everything correct, but there was an urgency and speed and even it wasn't that they were cutting corners. It's just that they they wanted to be assured that if they got engaged with the government on this process with Operation Warp Speed, that they were not going to be held liable for this. Because when you look at infectious disease products, vaccines, antibiotics, they're not very lucrative. Companies would rather make Viagra and antidepressants and cancer drugs. They don't want to be involved in infectious disease. And we've seen actually people exiting the vaccine market because of liability concerns, because the anti-vaccine movement sues for a lot of things. And even if those cases never amount to anything, it still costs a lot of money. So that's why that happened. Um, that, that, and it's not unprecedented. It happened during the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, and it first happened in 1976. And, and there, there are ways to deal with the liability issue because we're trying to make sure that people actually want to make vaccines and that they get a return on investment. But you can, that's how I do it. I just t address all the questions one by one. And as someone who's been in the field and studied all of this, can you also make a short comment about the excess deaths uh, claim that supposedly there's so many excess deaths that are mysterious and uh, we can't explain them? They're not really a mystery. We're in the middle of a pandemic and those excess deaths, most of them are related to COVID. If you look at the excess deaths and map them with COVID deaths, they almost clearly overlap. There are some, there is a gap there and those excess deaths may be related to pandemic related delays in healthcare. So some people may not have taken, we know in, in England, for example, a lot of people didn't get their hypertension medicine. We know people missed their, their cancer screenings. Uh, we know we know all of that occurred, but the excess deaths over the last couple of years have been driven by COVID itself. and, and and they clearly mirror COVID-19 deaths. There hasn't been excess deaths from anything else to the proportion of COVID-19. And, uh, and again, in, in the COVID-19 COVID cascading impact on healthcare, which, which caused 
some of those excess deaths as well. But there's no evidence that those are coming um, from, from the vaccine. And the excess deaths have started occurring much before the vaccine occurred. It was because of COVID yeah. itself driving those deaths. Thank you, Amy. So I have one last question for, for each one of you. So Mike, let's get back to the issue of people trying to estimate risk and go with worst case scenario. So again, I've heard people say, well, how do I know that uh, something uh, bad might not happen from the vaccine in two or three years, for example? And therefore, I will be careful. Maybe I had my first two doses. I'm not going to have the third one or something like that. So how should one think about unknown risks or the unknown unknown, as uh, Donald Rumsfeld put it some years ago? Well, I mean, part of the answer is you can't really. So if there's no evidence that there is a risk at some downstream time, what do you do with that? It's not like you can give a number to that. It's there's a 10 percent chance of 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 some of what side effects some in five years i'll have slightly more acne years or in five years i'll die like what what is what are you even imagining and i think it's important to say it that way imagining if there's no evidence of no specific future risk what you're doing is risk calculating on the basis of your imagination which is never um, um rational what you should do is you should look at what risks are known and then risk calculate based on that. Um, I don't think there's any grounds to, I mean, I think it's another arbitrary, maybe there'll be some unknown thing that'll pop up in 10 years as a side effect. Like, why do you think that? And if the answer is, uh, maybe there, I mean, like it's possible. Well, that's not really evidence of anything that you can imagine it that, um, that you can speculate it. That's an, itself another um, indulgence in arbitrary thinking. And it's making a, a potentially serious um, decision based on arbitrary. Like if you're at high risk of COVID complications and that's why you're deciding not to take the vaccine, um, you know, you're putting yourself at risk on the basis of a, a fantasy. And then Makes you, sense. As I said earlier, you would just say that, have you ever seen that other, in any other vaccine 10 years down the road that something popped up? Probably not. Is it what you're asserting biologically plausible? Probably not. And, you know, what's the side effect of 10 years? What if you get severe COVID? What's, they don't ask that. What, what if I get severe COVID because I'm not vaccinated? What's the, what's the chance of 10 years from now I might have a health problem related to that? That's actually a real risk, but they, don't, they discount that whole side of it. Indeed. So before I ask the last question to Amy, let me say a big thank you to those of you who ask questions and to the Super Chatters. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Bonnie. And uh, actually, Bonnie says, someone who got their booster, their last booster on September, and uh, when should they get their next booster? So it depends on your risk factors for, for severe disease. So uh, September was... So I would say wait six months after that booster at, at minimum uh, to get the next booster so that you actually benefit from it. But if you're somebody, it depends on your risk factors for severe disease. If you're an otherwise healthy, younger person, you're probably not going to benefit from another booster. If you have any high risk conditions, I would wait six months from the last booster and get it. Right. And I see some people uh, bringing up the issue of the lockdowns and how uh, the government overstepped its authority. I agree with that but you don't correct a mistake by a second mistake. And even worse, you don't correct a mistake by someone hurting themselves. So by not taking a vaccine, you don't punish Trump and you don't punish Joe Biden. You only punish, uh, you only punish yourself. 
So the last question, Amy, is where we are now and seeing the last two years and seeing in the future, what would be your, let's say, two-minute estimate of where we've come up to this point with this pandemic, where we are, and how do you see how do you see the future? So I think that we're at least in in the Western countries, um, with the exception, big, you know, big exception of China, we're we're in a position where the that the virus has become much more manageable. It doesn't threaten hospital capacity the way it once could. We have more tools to deal with COVID-19 than we do for any other respiratory virus. I wish we had the tools for influenza that we do for COVID-19. And yes, we're going to see that the virus is not static. It's going to continue to evolve and it's going to continue to try to be able to infect us despite the immunity we have from vaccines, from boosters and from prior infections and combinations of those. But it's increasingly going to be decoupled from severe disease. It's it's going to become milder in the sense that it's infecting people that have a lot of immunity. And while it might be able to still infect us, it's not going to be able to cause severe disease. And, and that's exactly where we thought we would end up with this with this virus. It's an efficiently transmitting respiratory virus that can't be eradicated, can't be eliminated. Our goal was to make it more manageable. And I think we're, we're there. There's still some work to be done. We still in the United States have 300 to 400 deaths per day, most of which are preventable in high risk people who have not been boosted, who have not gotten antiviral treatment. But we're in a place where this is easier to deal with. So I think that I think that that's going to be the continued trajectory uh, in the world. Uh, China will catch up eventually, but that's where we are. And I think the key thing now is to make sure that this never happens again and that we don't have lockdowns, that we don't have governors and presidents and heads of state using blunt tools, that we don't have that, that same calamity occur. And that can be preventable if people actually are proactive and actively trying to uh, stop this from happening and we get better infectious disease policies, uh, sort of the, like the ones that, that, that Ankar Gatte wrote about in, in his paper. All of that needs to be done, but I think we're in an, we're in an okay position in, in the United States and many other countries now with COVID. And, it, and it's thanks to science and medicine and all of those physicians and scientists that put their minds to work and actually uh, came up with solutions in record record time and basically save save the world from uh, what was a you know a, a fairly dangerous pandemic not 1918 levels but still fairly disruptive with over a million deaths in the united states many of which were preventable and mike a last comment uh, from you because during the pandemic we didn't see bad and arbitrary claims only from the anti-vax uh, side but we also saw a lot of bad claims maybe even arbitrary claims from the side that was in favor of uh, coercive measures, of measures that uh, uh, breached the individual rights. So do you want to address this, this point? Yeah, so that we got this uh, question uh, submitted that points out that all of our criticisms are aimed at the anti-vax crowd and they ask about criticisms of the, uh, as they call it, the coercion crowd and the arbitrary claims made about the risks of COVID. So <clears throat> I want to, so just, abstractly. Yeah, if somebody's making arbitrary claims about the risks of COVID, and they're really arbitrary claims, that is, they're made up there, or they're asserted only with the pretense of evidence, you, sh you should do what I said earlier, you should not take them as a serious expert, there's somebody who, who's not trustworthy. Um, but so that's the more abstract claim, but arbitrary claims, again, aren't just false claims. So there were a lot of claims made in early in the pandemic that people were saying, look, uh, we're making this claim about how risky something might be based on the evidence we have at the time. And some of those claims turned out to be wrong. 
that's not arbitrary. If you really are making the claims on the basis of evidence and you get it wrong, that isn't arbitrary. Now, if somebody is systematically wrong over years, always and always, always wrong, even when they look at the evidence, but won't admit it, and maybe they're incompetent, and that might be a reason to dismiss somebody. Or maybe they're unwilling to um, self-criticize. They're not incompetent, but when they get it wrong, they won't reflect on how. That's another reason not to discount somebody. Um, so, so, so there's that kind of high, higher level thing to say. But I, I wanted to take up this question for another reason. Um, let's say it's true that all of these major, you know, Dr. Fauci is a liar and everybody was making arbitrary assertions about the risk. And okay, is that an excuse for somebody like Peter McCullough to do it? Is that an excuse for you to do it? No, that's it. You're changing the subject. If, if that's your reply to, to this, um, to us pointing out the arbitrariness in the claims of the uh, COVID vaccine skeptics crowd is to point out that somebody else is arbitrary. That's not a reply to the, to what's, to what's at stake. Um, so, I mean, the best this claim will get you is you can't listen to anybody. Not that you can now go listen to the skeptics. That's a, that's a good way to put it. So Amy's just from, a, a, a thank you not only for showing up here and helping us understand these topics, but also for the things that you did during the pandemic, how you were always there, a voice for reason. And uh, if not many people will tell it to you, I will tell it to you. And I know many people who tell it to you with me. A big thank you for the things you have uh, done. And Mike, thank you also for the, for the clarity you gave us today. And again, what you said at the end, it's one thing for someone to be wrong. Because when you're wrong, you can correct it. And it's another thing to say something which is based on nothing, because then not only it has nothing to do with reality, the way your mind works means that you're going to be wrong every time, almost by default, because by default, you don't go by your, by your mind. So that was it for today. Next week is a special episode because it is Ayn Rand's birthday. So the new idea live next week we will have a discussion between uh, with uh, a philosopher Harry Binswanger about Ayn Rand's value-centered approach to philosophy. Again, with uh, Harry and I think it's Aaron who is going to interview him. Now, if you appreciate what we're doing, if you appreciate this podcast, please feel free to like, share, you know, comment spread the word and you can find us on youtube but also you can spread the words in the rest of the platforms also if you have ideas about future episodes who should we talk to what is a topic that could be of interest to you what is a topic that you would want us to cover you can drop us an email to the email address that you will see there newideal at einrand.org so once again Many thanks to Avis, many thanks to Mike. Thanks for being with us. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.